Belmont Park is back in full swing, and man, they have a huge card this weekend, highlighted by the Grade 1 Belmont Derby Invitational, and also the Joe Hirsch Turf Classic, with some great races on the undercard, like the Gallant Bloom, the Kelso Handicap, and the Pilgrim Stake. If you're new to horse racing and want to try out Naira Bets, there is a new member sign-up bonus. Just use the promo code Rewind R E W I N D to get a $200 match deposit bonus. Go on NairaBets.com or sign up using the NairaBets app. Terms and conditions do apply. One more ad before we get started with this week's Redboard Rewind. Later this week on the In the Money Network, PTF will be hosting a special Preakness preview show sponsored by Sports Blocks. Stephen Christ and Naomi Tucker will join him to talk all about this year's race. Joe DiPario of Sportsbox will also join PTF to talk about a couple of new exciting offerings. Tune into the show to hear more. And for more about Sportsbox, check out their website at sportsblx.com. That's sportsblx.com. Welcome to episode 55 of Red Bull Rewind. My name is Spencer Luganbuehl. And today, my special guest is a two-time handicapping author, Barry Meadow. We went over last Saturday's races from the wonderful stakes day at Santa Anita Park. And some angles that we came up with were how to improve your bankroll management, why having the fastest quarter in turf sprints can be a positive angle, and why watching replays and knowing all the horses on your current circuit can make your job of handicapping day in and day out easier. This is Redboard Rewind. It's the same old I'd like to welcome in my special guest, someone I like to call the guru of the bankroll management, the one great only Barry Meadow. Barry, how are you today? I'm doing well, Spencer. How are you? I'm hanging in there. It was a long weekend. Uh, we do a little head-to-head challenge for my website, The Daily Gallup. I ended up not having the best week at Santa Anita, but we got 54 people in there, and we're having a blast with it. Hey, well, the more people participate in this game, the greater the game has a chance to grow and be successful and keep people in it because it's a great game. I couldn't agree more with you. Super excited to have you on, have my questions, have my two Barry Meadow books right next to me, one being called The Skeptical Handicapper that came out a few years ago, and one that really got me known for who you are, and that's Money Secrets at the Racetrack with that sweet $109,000 Santania check on there from hitting that pick six all those years ago. Well, that was a good day. Actually, that was the day that I figured I could actually do this because I I had played the harness races uh, from 83 to 87, and in 88, uh, I switched over to the thoroughbreds, and um, uh, it was tough going at first because it was a different sport. Uh, it was different from um, what you knew at the at the harness races, uh, the whole sequence of how things were, the distance changes, uh, what the trainers did, uh, workouts, everything was different, so there was, was a big learning curve, but I said, you know what, I think I can do this, and I finally was able to hit that big score, and I had a, a couple of other big ones that year, and I wound up uh, making $100,000, over 100000 that year, net profit. And I said, okay, I think I can actually do this. So, And I just stuck with it for the next 23 years till I finally retired. 
So let me ask you a question that I've always wanted to know. What made you want to write a money based so strictly on bankroll in general? Was it the fact that there was all those handicapping books and nothing on bankroll management? Or was it the fact that you just thought you, you had a lot to give a newbie handicapper when it came to bankroll management? Well, I like to think about things. I don't like to rush into things. And of course, when I started playing the harness races, I was looking around for what I could do as far as money management. And frankly, most of this stuff didn't make any mathematical sense. So I, I try to think very seriously about each type of bet. What are the advantages? What are the disadvantages? How do you find value? And uh, of course, I was practicing that all the time I was playing the harness races, which was every night for, for all that time. And uh, I said, I think some other people might be interested in, uh, in learning this kind of thing. So I published the book, and uh, it's still selling today, believe it or not. I mean, when I look at this book, I remember buying my copy, getting into it. I think I read the whole thing in one day, and I was like, it just almost like opened up this new breakthrough in my mind of just how to look at it with the odds line in general i've read the you know mark kramer quinn all these different books and just the fact that making an odds line just takes all the guesswork out of it you think the horse should be four to one you need him to be 50 percent higher it's you know if he's five and a half to one six to one make the bet if he's if he's seven to two or five to two sure the horse may win but it just based on your math and your handicapping skill you didn't think the horse was going to win that many times it's not going to be profitable over the long run well, this is a game of long run. I think there was a specific incident of the harness which really set my mind going in the right direction. There was some stakes race. It was at uh, Yonkers Raceway or Roosevelt, wherever I was playing at the time. And uh, it looked to me like a two-horse race. One solid local horse who had great figures, who had nothing wrong with him, who was the big favorite. And this other shipper who had some good races out of town, I didn't know that much about him, but he looked like the only possible contention. Anyway, the favorite went off, uh, you know, even money, and the other horse went off at a big price, 15 to 1 or something. And sure enough, the 15 to 1 shot won. And I was thinking, why didn't I bet that horse? I did like him second best. And that really got me thinking how I, you know, how I should approach this entire thing, which is not just who's going to win, but what's the value it's value like anything else. If you're buying houses, uh, you may have a beautiful house, but if it's too much money, maybe it's not not worth it. Uh, you're buying a car. A car might be worth forty thousand. It doesn't. You're not going to buy. You might love the car. You're not going to pay sixty thousand for it. So you have to match the chances that the horse is going to win, which is your analysis of the race with the odds that the public gives you, because you never know what the public is going to give you. Uh, years ago, you know, there used to be separate pools at each track. Mm -hmm. So if you bet a horse in Florida, you'd, you'd get a different price from a horse that you bet in New York or California. And uh, the odds were all over the place, depending on which place you bet. You never know when the crowd's going to make a mistake. And they do frequently. I can imagine Chad Brown nowadays in New York would be so so lightly raced, and maybe the people in Florida wouldn't know of him so well, and he might be able to get 5-2, to 3-1 to one on most of the Chad Brown winners instead of 6-5 to five, like we see in New York all the time. Yeah, people like their local trainers. They like their local horses. Uh, and uh, uh, it, nowadays, not as much as it used to, for sure, because lots of people play nationwide tracks. You have the computer group spending lots and lots of money. You have a lot of information that was never available. I remember one time betting a race uh, at Fresno with a bookmaker, and it was the last race of the meet, and the results were not in the racing form. The local paper wasn't printing the results. We didn't know who won the last race. We had no idea. <laughs> We we never we eventually agreed to say you know what let's just let's just call that a draw. <laughs> I, I don't pay and you don't and that's that. So but it was the craziest thing. Now, that would never happen now. But I you know 
uh, a lot of stuff happened over the years that doesn't happen now. Unfortunately, some stuff has been for the worse. I made a lot of money betting these betting exchanges. That was my number one thing for all the years that the, the exchanges were around. And now you can't do that anymore unless you live in New Jersey and play Betfair. So it's uh, and the takeout's a lot higher on those now. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, some of the changes are not in favor of the player. There's more jackpot bets, which of course sucks people into betting races they should never bet. One of my favorite chapters in Money Secrets at the Racetrack is just a day at Santanita where you and James Quinn went out and played. And one of the biggest takeaways from that chapter for me was uh, James hit the first two races, didn't really like anything out throughout the rest of the card, missed the very last race, and still ended up with such a healthy profit for the day. And just for me, people want to just play 11 races for the day? Cool, I'm playing all 11. Why do you think people just need that straight adrenaline rush of just having to play every race? What's the purpose of people going to the track? For a very few people, the purpose is, I want to make my living or I want to make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, for most people, it's, I want to go somewhere with my friends and have a good time. I want to go somewhere where there's a lot of action and I can use my brains. Uh, I want to be in a social atmosphere where there's a lot of people to talk with and kibitz with during the day. There are a lot of reasons people go to the track. And uh, for many people, the more action they have, the happier they are. This has nothing to do with making money long term, of course, because there's not value in every race. You can't handicap every race. You tell me I'm going to handicap a, a race at a track I've never seen before. I know nothing about the biases or what uh, what post positions are best at which distances and which trainers have certain specialties. I mean, I don't know what's going on at Belterra Park or, uh, mm-hmm. or Charlestown. So how can I expect to make money there? Just because it's up on the screen, why would I bet it? But somebody who wants a lot of action says, yeah, I can play this race. So I always stuck with my local tracks. I only did Northern and Southern California. I did those every single day. And I, in fact, when the entries came out, I barely even had a look through my computer with it. I had all my notes because I just knew those horses. I just saw them all the time. I know who they were. So I know, and I knew what they could do. But of course, I did review my computer notes all the time. But the point is that you're going to do better at tracks you know and that you're familiar with. And tracks you don't know are just lines on a piece of paper. Even if I watch a replay from Gulfstream Park, I don't really know those horses. Whereas I used to know all the horses at Golden Gate and Hollywood Park and Santa Anita and uh, Los Alamitos and Bay Meadows at that time. So that was a big advantage I had is I could look at a, a racing form and tell you, oh, that line really is not correct, or well, that line looks good, but it wasn't that good. For someone, who, and I feel like, especially for like just my thoughts, I feel like horse racing is the hardest in-between sport between someone who, you know, they want to take that next big step and maybe not become professional, but really take, you know, maybe two months out of a year and really try and make, you know, try and make a go of it. What What is your kind of prep when you remember all those years ago when you were like, okay, I'm going to try and go for it, I'm going to do it professionally. How much prep did you have to put into Santa Anita, Bay Meadows, Del Mar, etc. before you felt comfortable really starting to attack with those you know, bigger bankroll bets, if we say? Well, remember, everybody's different. For me, the most important thing was replays. Mm-hmm. Uh, I watch your replays extremely carefully. I made notes on every horse, and so I had a very good idea if a horse uh, raced up to what it appeared on the form. Wow. And horses, I found, which I didn't know at the beginning, 
courses to me are extremely consistent. Uh, they'll run almost the same. Some of them will run almost the same number every single time once you adjust for the trip or the pace uh, or any biases and things like that. So if you knew, if you could figure those other things out, you'd have a, a big edge over people that are just looking at a bare number because uh, knowing that a horse ran a 73 next time uh, last time, it's not as important as thinking, will he run an 83 this time or a 63 this time? You have to be able to predict whether a horse is getting better or worse and judging by what sort of position he's in, which means the distance, the competition, uh, what looks like the probable pace of the race, you have to be able to figure that out and then visualize what is going to happen in that race. Now, you're going to be wrong a lot of the time. You're going to uh, guess at the probable pace of the race. It won't exactly go that way. But the times you're right is when you can make some real money in this game. What do you feel for the fledgling handicapper? Maybe he doesn't have the biggest bankroll. We always hear, you know, oh, we want the lower takeout. So 10% for the pick four is good, and people should get involved in that because it is lower takeout. To me, if I'm ever looking through a race or a sequence, I always start at the win bet, then place and show, and then work my way through exactas, daily doubles. Like, I, I want to go up the uh, the level of, you know, easier to being a tougher bet. Do you feel that people just, because they want to play the pick four and pick five and make that big score, that just people don't care about the exacta win bets and the daily double anymore? Well, you know, win bets and exacta bets are still have a higher handle than, than pick threes mm -hmm. and pick fours and pick sixes. But certainly, you're absolutely right. There's lots of people that all they want to do is they want to make a score. And so they're thinking, how can I make a score? Well, you can't always make a score. Sometimes uh, it's kind of like football. Uh, you may have a certain strategy, but you have to take what the defense gives you. And not every race is uh, the time to bet the 10 to 1 shot. Maybe the 3 to 5 shot is too tough. So you can't bet every race because there may not be value in every race. Some races you can't even you don't even get to that point because the race itself is too difficult to handicap. What are you going to do with the race with nine first-time starters? Uh, so you you can't go in there if you expect to make money. And, and think you're going to play every race because that's not going to happen. Instead, you have to focus on the races where you believe you have an edge and then use that, which is a discrepancy between your opinion and the crowd's opinion. That's how you decide when to play. If there's no discrepancy, you don't play. If there is, that's when you play. What was your biggest handle in specific wagering and also about how many races did you wager on a day when you were a professional? Uh, well, that depends because once the exchanges came out, the exchanges, you can have an opinion. You can have some opinion in most races on the card. The opinion might be you don't like the two-to-one second choice. Uh, the opinion might be you don't like the third choice at all. Or the opinion could be you really love this horse that you think is going to be the third choice and you know he's going to get under bet. So uh, uh, I, ne I never knew exactly what was going to happen each day. Most of my money went on win bets and exactus. But I also bet place and show, depending on what kind of rebates I was getting at the time, because I was a big believer in chasing rebates as much as possible, because that could be the difference between winning and losing, as it is for these big computer teams. They don't care if they lose 3%, if they're getting 9 or 10% mm -hmm. back. Uh, so, uh, unfortunately, most players don't are not connected with rebates and uh, and the industry has not done a very good job of uh, of helping players keep their costs down but i wouldn't i wouldn't uh, bet something just because it has a low takeout if i don't know those horses who cares what the takeout is 10% mm. is 10% i don't i don't have an edge for uh, if, on the other hand, it's a bet in a track where I know all the horses in this particular pick four, I hate two of the favorites. Now you're talking. That's a different situation altogether. 
when we're looking at a whole entire card and you're, you know, obviously only playing the, the races that you want to bet based on, you know, like you said, if there's nine first time starters. You're not going to play that race unless you have a good feeling about that race. Uh, you hear people in the handicapping books say, oh, only play, you know, three races a day. But if your odds line in, in six races all gives you an overlay, you should be playing those six races. I would say I probably played more races at the harness race than at the thoroughbreds because the harness races, the horses pretty much raced every week. Mm -hmm. So I I know those horses without even looking at my notes. Uh, The thoroughbreds is usually more of uh, horses coming from out of town, horses coming off layoffs, horses making giant class drops. There's more questionable situations at the thoroughbreds. Uh, normally, I would say I would play probably three races a day on average. Some days I played three at each track or four at each track, depending on what, what was available. And some days I played one race or no races. Uh, when the exchanges were available, that's when I played almost, well, not every race, but I'd say 90% of the races, I had some opinion. Maybe I just didn't like the 30 to one shot. I thought he should have been 100 to one shot, and I bet against him. So the exchanges made it much easier to, to play a lot of races uh whereas otherwise you have to look for a situation where you're not looking exactly what the rest of the crowd is because if you handicap exactly as the crowd does you lose what the crowd does which is the track takeout give or take a couple of percent something for that i think a lot of people could you know hear and adhere by would be you say you only would rare would play three races a day well, three races doesn't equal to pick five because obviously that's five races. And let's say you like race one, six, and nine. Well, you can't play a pick three or a daily double there. How hard was it for you to not want to get involved in those bigger pools if, let's say, you did like a 10-to-one shot here and you thought that the you know favorite in the next was okay, maybe not a stone-cold cinch, and that could have came back as a decent daily double? Well, if I liked a 10-to-one shot, I was betting. So what I would do is I would look around, not just to bet him to win, but to look at the daily double, look at the look at the exact, look at the pick three, look at anything that that he was involved in. If I liked a four to five shot, it was a little different story. Then it was like, who cares? Uh, so it was um, it was always I, I was I was lucky. I always had discipline right from the beginning. I was not tempted to go uh, to go bet just because a race was on. In fact, I used to bring a usually I'd, I'd bring a book which had nothing to do with horse racing to the track with me. So the races I didn't care for, I would just read my book. Now, uh, if I was interested in the race at all, I'd be looking at the pools all the way through, and I was concentrating very hard. And, of course, when I was playing from home, which was the last few years playing from my computer, uh, using the computer on the phone, uh, I was always looking at the pools uh, very carefully, looking for some discrepancy, looking for some edge somewhere. And if I found one I played, if not, I would just watch the race live, but not pay huge attention because the huge attention was paid when I watched the replays. Because we all know what happens when people look at the races live. They always say, oh, my horse would have won except for so-and-so. Well, uh, that's usually not the case. you got to be very objective when you're watching replays. And sometimes your horse is just no good. And sometimes a horse you hated runs great, and you say, well, i got to change my opinion now. If you're flexible and you can change your opinion, and you base it on what, what you see and what you know, that's a lot better than just looking at a, a number on a, uh, on a printout. Let's say somebody, they're somewhat new, they've read a couple books. Uh, obviously, the Breeders' Cup is at Keeneland this year, and the Keeneland meet is, is going to start soon. What's three tips you would give somebody that wanted to start doing the odds line, just start, you know, maybe making a run at turning a $500 bankroll into 2500 or say something like that? 
Well, the, the thing with the Breeders' Cup and things like that, you've got horses coming from all over, and they're good horses. So it's sometimes it's hard to eliminate horses. Uh, and uh, there's a certain amount of randomness in these races because you have a lot of horses that can run big numbers. Also, they're coming from different tracks, and maybe they're going to like Keeneland, and maybe they won't. So it's a very difficult handicapping contest, which is one reason why people say, hey, this is a giant challenge. I don't like challenges. I like stuff that's easy. <laughs> I like stuff I can do. I don't want to say, oh, this looks impossible. I'll try it. I don't need to prove how good I am to somebody. I like to just see stuff I know. And if I know stuff, that's better. Now, if I was handicapping uh, uh, the, the any, anything at Keeneland, I would first learn what's going on at Keeneland. Is there any bias? Is there a front speed bias? Is there, is there uh, outside bias? Is there uh, uh, are certain days... Uh, the track was off and horses from the back couldn't win. So I'd learn about the track. I'd learn which post positions were helpful to which uh, uh, to which uh, distances. And then, of course, I'd certainly want to watch at least the last three races of all the horses that were running uh, because this way you get a good idea of, of who they are and what they can do. Um, because uh, to me, you have to know the horses. If you don't know the horses... Um, you're going to be handicapped and you're going to be at a disadvantage against people that do know the horses. And the way I know horses is I would always look at replays. Even when I do, uh, you know, a one-off like uh, your podcast or other shows or something, and they say, okay, we want you to handicap X. I say, okay, I better watch the replay, their most recent races on replays and see what they can do. So uh, even though I may not know them, at least I know them a little bit from watching the replays. Without replays, to me, I have no chance. Let's jump into a track that you know very well. We asked you to do three races from Santania from Saturday's wonderful card, the first one being the opener going five and a half on the turf course. It was the $75,000 unzip me. I asked you to do a couple odds line for me. I'll just run through them really quick. You had the number four Bulletproof 1 at 7 to 5, the number three Aqua Seaform Shame at 9 to 2, Biddy Duke the number five at 8 to 1, the number two Mind Out at 9 to 1, the number one blue sky baby at ten to one, and then number seven Moonhall Millie fifteen to one, parkour thirty to one, and powerful attraction hundred to one. Merneath was scratched. Kind of give us your thoughts into the race and why you thought Bulletproof One just was that solid, solid standout. Well, I should tell people that uh, you mentioned a few times. Make sure you get the, that email with your odds line to me before the first race. Isn't there's no cheating on Spencer's program? Just so you know that. <laughs> so. Everything was sent to him in advance, not after the races were over. How I handicapped uh, the first race? Well, one of the most important findings we had in uh, Skeptical Handicapper, we looked at 10,000, and when I say we, I mean me and Ken Massa, who did the computer work, uh, who's an expert, horse racing analytic expert. Uh, 10,000 turf sprints. If you had simply bet the horse with the fastest quarter, Anywhere in his past performances with no handicapping at all, uh, you'd only lose 4% of your money, which is an incredible feat for that many races with no handicapping. So when I'm looking at a turf sprint, the first thing I'm looking at is who can get to the early part of the race uh, the quickest. And in that case, Bulletproof 1 was certainly the speedster because he'd done 44-2 and two at a race in uh, uh, on the synthetic at Golden Gate. He'd done... Uh, 44-2 at a five furlong race at uh, Del Mar, and he done 44-3 and three at, a, at a dirt race in Del Mar. So no matter what the surface was, this guy was blasting out of there fast, and he was on the lead in uh, his all of his last seven races early. 
So I thought he was going to be the one to get the lead. Well, was there anybody that could go close to him? No, actually, no. I look. I circled all the um, the half times for all the other horses. Uh, nobody was close. Biddy Duke had done 44 uh, and four last time. Uh, nobody else was close. So he looked like he was going to get a really easy lead. And this horse does great when he uh, when she's when she's on the lead uh, with nobody near her. The previous race she got in the speed duel. Every race she's gotten in the speed duel, she's lost. Every race she was clear, she won. So she looked to me like she was very very strong. Now of course there was always a chance that some other horse, uh, you know, maybe Biddy Duke would go faster, or Parker would show something, but not not really likely. Blue Sky Baby, I didn't care for. So she looked like she'd get the lead to me in one step. She'd have a big lead all the way through, and she'd, she'd just keep going, which is what she did. Uh, Aqua Seaform Shame was, you can forget the last race, that was a mile and an eighth. The previous two races were both wins at five furlongs at Delmore, so certainly the distance was not going to be a gigantic problem. And uh, uh, But she didn't have the early speed that... Uh, that uh, Bulletproof one had, so I couldn't like her, you know, as much. And so I had a big discrepancy between those two. Bulletproof one, I had a seven or five accuracy form, shame at nine to two. Biddy Duke had raced well last time. Her, her her last race, not clear in the PPs, which is why I watch races. She was totally geared down last time. That was a big race for her. That was her best mm-hmm. race, uh, really, uh, ever. And she was geared down, so that's a good sign when a horse is not all out. But I didn't see that she was going to be able to compete with bulletproof one which is why i made her a long shot mind out was a you know pure closer good closer nice horse didn't figure in this race didn't figure it didn't figure to be a pace battle and the same with and blue sky baby this would have been a great race to play on the exchange because i didn't like this horse at all i made this horse 10 to 1 the crowd made this horse 2 to 1 for some mysterious reason uh, her last race, yes, it looked like she became a new horse. She came off a layoff and raced by far her best buyer number. But that was the most that was the most perfect trip you could imagine. I could have won off that trip without even a horse. She was sitting behind two duelers, minding her own business, and uh, well, I didn't see her improving enough to get near you know net near the top horse. So that's the order I had them in. Bulletproof one to me was a big strong standout favorite. Aqua Seaform Shame coming off two wins at this distance close to this look like she had some chance if something bad happened to their favorite and the other horses i had were long shots in that order so you know miraculously the horses finished one two three four five in the order that i had them in which happens about once every hundred years <laughs> and the and the super high five paid sixteen hundred dollars for a dollar which uh, makes me wish I was betting that race. But uh, there wasn't uh, the big discrepancy was Blue Sky Baby being going off a two to one, a, a horse to me that didn't really show all that much. Why would she bet that much? Don't know, don't care. Don't know, don't care if, if the owner made a $3 trillion bet on a horse. Don't care if uh, every handicapper liked her. I never paid attention to what anybody else said. In the same way that a, a football coach doesn't ask, you know, or, uh, uh, some blogger or some TV commentator, hey, what do you think my defense should be used against that team? You know, you're supposed to know what you're doing. So I didn't pay a lot of attention to what other people said about races, other than information sources. Like, I didn't go to the workout, so I bought a workout service. Uh, I had a backup trip, a trip note service uh, that I adjusted their numbers to back me up in case I missed something when I watched a race. But as far as opinion on a race, no, I didn't really pay attention to anybody else so to me the key to that race was playing against blue sky baby 
because none of the others went out for gigantic prices. But there was money to be made uh, if I was playing playing against that that horse that went out for two to one. It's funny we uh, we were actually a hundred percent opposite in this race. For me, a horse like Bulletproof One, obviously I've read Skeptical Handicapper. The four uh, percent loss is something that I have thought about. I just and this is, comes from me being a numbers guy. The ninety five buyer two back where the horse won by open lengths. I just, it was the only kind of race I had seen like that on the page. And for me trying to take a short price horse who has only shown the light bulb angle once and then came right back to run a 70, it was on the wrong surface. I just didn't know if at a short price, I could take that kind of horse seriously without showing it to me one more time and putting that ache, the pie in my face. The two horses I ended up making uh, pretty much co top choices was blue sky baby and aqua seaform shame. Uh, Flavian Pratt and Umberto Raspoli are two jockeys. We uh we ended up picking three turf races today to go over as well. They're kind of the one A and one of the turf colony jockey wise, and just uh, Aqua Seaform Shame gets a big rider upgrade to Flavian Pratt. Like you had said, the last race of the mile and an eighth, you can just cut right out, and it was also a Grade One. Now you get the class drop to the listed stake and get right back into that solid form we had seen since the ship to or shift to the turf of 71 and 83 buyer. This horse is obviously could possibly show improvement and getting Flavian Pratt in the irons is no bad thing. Blue sky baby. I, I don't, maybe the reason we were different was I just liked the fact that coming off of the layoff, the horse ran so well getting Rispoli in the irons for the first time. I know we talk about how jockeys and trainers can't improve horses leaps and bounds, but if a horse like bulletproof one doesn't show back up with that 95, this race can get wide open and get really tricky. Obviously, we know what happened with uh, Bulletproof 1. did come with the actual same race from two back, but I think it's just interesting that on my line, I had made Blue Sky Baby and Aqua Seaform 2-1 to one each. I still could, I could only bet one of them based on where they went off, Aqua Seaform Shame being 4-1. to one. Uh, Let's kind of talk about how you, you need that 50% odds line improve. Uh, jump up that way when you're wrong in your odds line you uh, can still be profitable well first i want to say that you can always have uh two good handicappers look at a race and come to totally different conclusions mm -hmm. and uh i i can tell you that when i did my notes for this race for blue sky baby i put down you know very good work last time and new horse question mark after that big race off the layoff so you want to factor in everything for the horse you don't want to just ignore stuff because it doesn't fit any sort of preconceived um you know idea you might have uh but uh, but the main thing is just because people disagree about a race doesn't mean uh you know that one of them is a genius and the other was an idiot because there are enough races over the course of the year people are going to come to different conclusions which as i said is one reason i never ask anybody else for their opinion about a race because it's very easy to get thrown off you say hey, you know what that that uh, that that scenario could work and uh, sometimes you get four handicappers they're all good handicappers they all come up with uh, with, you know with good uh, with good opinions on a race but uh, the race has to go in a certain way, and uh, it goes. And sometimes you're right, and sometimes you're wrong. I'm not. Uh, there was there was a, a handicapper I remember many years ago. His name was Junior, and Junior was very very knowledgeable about harness races. So somebody would come up with him and say, you know, I like I like the two horse in this race. Junior would look at him and and cock his head and go, get a job. 
<laughs> because he has no respect for anybody who disagreed with his opinion. Uh, I do. You can have uh, various ways to look at a race, depending on what you emphasize. And sometimes you're right, and sometimes uh, sometimes you're wrong. So uh, you know, I make no claim that every race I uh, uh, you know that I look at is is genius, because most races over the course of the year you lose. You're not going to win for a lot of reasons so um you just have to get paid when you're right let's listen back to bulletproof one's win here in the ends at me right now proof one comes out running so does powerful attraction on the outside but it is bulletproof one who's the quickest of the quick Blue Sky Baby comes through along the inside. Biddy Duke wasn't quick out of there, but is now moving into contention, taking second and coming after Bulletproof One. Aqua Sea Form Shame is two and a half off the pace, currently fourth. Powerful Attraction is back to fifth. Then it's Mind Out inside Moon Hall, Millie, and Parkour at the back. Bulletproof One cruising along. Has a two and a half length lead on Biddy Duke coming to the quarter pole. Blue Sky Baby, Aqua Sea Form Shame, third and fourth. Mind Out angles out for the drive, top of the stretch. And Bulletproof One with a commanding lead. Biddy Duke, Aqua Sea Form Shame. Mind Out continues to finish with interest, as does Parkour Yellow Cap looking for room. It's Bulletproof One who ran them off their feet. And Bulletproof One all the way in the unzip me stakes. Aqua Sea Form Shame rallies for second. Photo for third, Biddy Duke and Mind Out. And the number four, Bulletproof One, does win, paying a measly 540, buyer of a 95. Barry, you had this horse at 7-5 to five on the line. You would have needed 2-1. to one. Let's kind of talk about why, even though you had the, the, the horse on top, it's just not profitable in the long run. Well, I always looked at long-run situations, and uh, um, just because a horse is slightly above what you what you like, you're not. It's very difficult to be as accurate as the public. The public is the greatest handicapper who ever lived. Of course, they make plenty of mistakes, but in the long run, over a, you know thousands and thousands of races, they do a great job of handicapping. So um, you have to make sure there's enough of a discrepancy because you're going to be wrong more often than you're right. Um, you. you you can't say, well, I make the horse 6-1, to one, he's 7-1, to one, therefore I should bet him. Well, that's a little tight as far as I'm concerned. You don't give yourself enough of a margin. So I'd rather give myself extra margin and play fewer races rather than less of a margin and play more races. When you were thinking about getting into it professionally and you know you're only handicapping a couple of races a day and this kind of race comes up and it's the first race of the day, how important was it for you to get off to a good start and hit that first wager? Well, remember, I was handicapping every race. I mm -hmm. may have only played three races a day, but I looked at every single race uh, to decide what I wanted to do with it. Was I going to include it as part of a daily double, or whether is there some a couple of horses I should look at carefully? Uh, how um, the, the fact is, you never know which races you're going to win and which races you're going to lose. So if a bet came up in the first race, I bet the first race. If nothing came up till the third race, I bet the third race. And whether I won or lost didn't matter. Although when I played the harnesses, I do remember one night where it was a sloppy track. It was raining. I'm, and I, I went there every single night for years. I said, uh, do I really want to be out here tonight? No, not really. So I think the first three races I bet, the horses didn't hit the board. And, uh, okay, well, I like this horse. I got to bet him. He's over my numbers. And sure enough, the horse won at 8-1 to one and it turned out to be a great day. You never know when you're going to win. You never know when you're going to lose. All you got to do is just try to keep making good bets. And if you make good bets, enough good bets, then you could win. But which races they come in, 
You just never know. I might not win a race till the 10th race. I might not win a race the whole day. I might win two races the whole week. Don't know. You never know. Now let's talk. Uh, obviously, the race has happened. Bullproof won, won after, uh, obviously you did after the whole day of races, but what was kind of your you know, note-taking ability after the race? How much stuff were you inputting? Was it a nightly thing, weekly thing? Obviously, it can be a monthly thing because putting 30 days of you know racing in would be astronomically difficult. Well, the first thing I did is I took my racing form and I watched the replays of both Southern and Northern California, uh, and I took notes on every horse and put them in my form. Then when I would get the trip service that I subscribed to and they had their numbers, I had I did all, always did all my own numbers. However, I used them as a backup, and what I would do is I would enter their number with my adjustments that I made based on the pace and trip light and things like that. And I would then I would transfer my notes, my written notes to my computer. So I kept everything in a database so I could look up any horse's last dozen races. You know, it took me one second. I just hit a button and boom, the race, all the races would come up. So I got a computer, my first computer I got in 1984 before I even knew how to use a computer because uh, I knew this thing was going to help me somehow. And sure enough, uh, without that, it would have been very, very difficult for me to handicap because that's where I had all my notes. I used to keep trainer notes before trainer notes became widely available. Mm -hmm. So anything that's germane to what you're doing, um, you should do. But I did watch replays every single night. And one reason is if I watched the races on a Thursday night, maybe something happened that would affect the, the handicapping for Friday. Maybe there was an inside bias. Maybe this, so I, I never got behind. I never said, well, I just don't feel like watching replays today. I'll watch them next week. Well, who knows what would have happened between mm -hmm. that day and next week. So I was always on top of that stuff. And luckily for me, I could always work late, and I never got tired. Of course, it wasn't too great for my family life, but uh, it, was, uh, it was pretty good for what I did for, uh, for a living. Let's jump into our second race of the day. It was a graded stake, the grade one Rodeo Drive going a mile and one quarter on the turf as well. Barry, the horses you kind of liked, uh, Lady France lot was three to one, Maxim Rate seven to two, Mucho Unusual at four to one, and Tonchutu three to one. So this is a race I think that you kind of thought that could go a bunch of different ways. Well, this race to me actually didn't take me that long to handicap this race because it looked to me as if there was absolutely no speed in the race at all. And this is a very important factor for races. How was the race going to go? So you had the horse who probably was the best horse, Lady Prancelot. I said, she's, she's not going to be able to get, uh, to get the kind of speed she needs in this race. This pace is going to be very slow. So since it's very slow, yeah, she's going to be coming on in the stretch because that's what she does. But uh, she's going to have a problem in this race. But even so, the fact that she is the best horse, I still had her as some some chance to win. But I didn't really like her very much. And she went off at seven or five, and it's exactly what happened. The race was super slow. So I said, okay, well, look, who first of all, uh, only, to me, only four horses could win, which for the four you mentioned. Uh, Tona Hutu had never run a mile and a quarter, so maybe she wasn't going to be able to handle a mile and a quarter, possibly. The other three had. However, she was the one who was the most likely to get the early lead. If I was looking at her, uh, uh, the early part of her races, uh, all of her last three races, all, all of her, actually, the last four races, she was within two and a half lengths of the early lead, and uh, the rest of the field... Um, only Maxim Rate and was that close, and that was only once. So it looked as if Tonohutu was going to be able to get the lead and, and 
run at a very super slow pace, and that's going to be uh, the advantage, even though I thought, well, she's not the best horse, but it doesn't really matter. Now, Macho Unusual had very good numbers. He looked like he might be tough, but I didn't think he was going to get the lead because he hadn't raced near the front in a year and a half. So I didn't think he was going to get up there. And Maxim Rate, um, you know, could be could be out left because uh, when you have several horses and nobody wants to lead, the horse on the rail can control things if she wants. So she went after the lead, but quickly got passed by Mucho Unusual. Uh, and uh, uh, again, the pace was very, very slow. I mean, they went 114 to the three quarters, which is about as slow as you can go for this class of horse. So the closers had no shot. So Lady Prancelot was a very good horse. Eventually, she'll find a race with, you know, three speed horses and she'll blow by all of them. But this was not the race. The other horses were very close. Tano Hutu, Maxim Rate, and uh, uh, Macho Unusual. It was very hard for me to separate them. Um, and uh, I tried to do some separation, but uh, it really wasn't much you could separate it. I figured Tono Hotu would be able to get the early lead, but as it turned out, uh, Macho Unusual got the early lead, and that was that because nobody was closing in this race. They couldn't, and you could see that before the race. Nobody could close. So since nobody can close, once in a while, something weird happens. Uh, it looks like nobody's going to go after the lead, and they all say, well, it looks like nobody will go. I'll go, and then there's some kind of duel, but that's pretty rare. Usually horses do what they do. Horses usually are prisoners of their style, and if you identify the style of each of the horses, you kind of know where they're going to be during the race. Tonahutu, I figure, is going to sit, you know, either first or second all the way around. Uh, Maxim Rate and Macho Unusual were going to be two and three all the way around, and then uh, then you had the closures that were going to be compromised by the pace, and that's kind of what happened. This was also a race where the second choice uh, Bodahita got scratched out, Flavian Pratt being one of the top riders as well. What Porsche was probably going to take some type of money. Uh, how important was it to go back and relocate your lines the morning of when you saw big-time scratches affect races that you thought you were going to play? Well, even if you have a small-time scratch, you always have to look at your line and make adjustments because maybe some 20-to-1 shot was going to be a big pace factor. Mm -hmm. uh, so you always adjust the line based on the latest information. Uh, you can't ignore scratches. You always have to check the late scratches because that that can make a big, big effect on what the pace of the race is going to be plus the odds you're, going to, you're giving each horse. So, uh, yes, you always have to make adjustments. Obviously, uh, to looked like she had a big figure in that race. Um, uh, so, so, yes, you have to adjust. But um, generally speaking, you're still going to like the horses you like and dislike the horses you, 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 know, you don't like. Uh, it's those horses you're not quite sure of that might make a difference if there's a scratch. Talking about the number one, Tona Hutu, I think since the claim for back for 32,000, just the horse seemed to become a new horse, 92, 92, 91 for Doug O'Neill. Maybe he had kind of unlocked this type of horse. The number two maximum rate had won a grade three back in 2019, but I just thought it looked more like a, you know, 62,000 allowance horse for most of the time. Mucho Unusual had a couple mid buyers in the 90s that I thought could be the main difference. And when you look at a horse that, you know, three by three, compared to Lady Prancelot, who was, you know, also three and a half back, but she was always, you know, sixth, fifth, would have a couple more horses to try to uh, to get through. I thought a horse like Mucho Unusual would be able to get the jump on this type of horse. I made Lady Prancelot nine to, nine to two on my line, just like you. I had her a little bit higher on the odd spectrum, but just a horse that I thought was going to be overplayed. How important is it on someone's odds line if they think that a favorite might be vulnerable but still can win to not just throw the horse completely out, which could obviously uh, skewer the odd line, 
to make certain horses much better prices than they should be. Well, even horses that you uh, even horses that you don't like um, can win. Mm-hmm. So you have to give them some chance, no matter what. Uh, you you can't say, well, I hate this horse. I'll make the horse 100 to one. Well, they're not 100 to one horses. They have maybe some. Maybe they're four, five, six to one. They're going to be seven to five or three to two. You say, oh, this would be a good horse to play against, but that doesn't mean they have no chance because sometimes those horses do beat you. I feel like that's the exact problem I had in the first race where obviously the horse you had on top ended up beating me where I just wanted to throw the horse out. And obviously she had some ability with that one big number and that just, it was foolish of me to kind of uh, throw that horse out. When you're, when you see a horse like this, a race, a horse race like this, that's so contentious, what do you do from a wagering standpoint? Do you start looking more at the exact as compared to the wind pour? Just does it exactly matter how they end up in the uh, probables? Well, it depends what uh, what odds the crowd is making these horses. If the crowd is overbetting one particular horse, now the exactus might be worthwhile, and I'll look at the exactus. But on the other hand, if they're if the crowd's making them all three to one, seven to two, the crowd can't decide. I can't decide. I really don't have anything to play. And I want to I want to address one other point you made. Uh, don't worry about losing races. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're going to lose a race. You're going to throw a horse out. I mean, sometimes you, sometimes when you uh, play a pick three, you got to leave out the four to five favorite because you're going to have no value in that pick three. Other times you're going to key the four to five favorite. You know, everything depends on other things. So uh, uh, the fact that you are going to lose a bet, uh, maybe if, for example, I have a, a $500 limit on my pick six place. Uh, and I, there's one race that looks like a two-horse race, but I like one of the horses better. I say, okay, I'm going to single that horse, and I can spread in the other races. Well, who's the most likely horse to beat me on the whole card is that second choice. And yes, maybe the second choice wins. And yes, I could have had it if I doubled my sheet, but I couldn't double the sheet. So you can't use every horse that can win. You can't use every horse, you know, ridden by the uh, by the uh, Ortiz people. Mm-hmm. You can't, uh, uh, you know, just because uh, uh, Gaffioloni suddenly gets uh, or Rispoli suddenly gets them out. Uh, you, you, sometimes you got to leave them out. Sometimes you got to leave out the horses with the best uh, buyer figures or best Brisnet figures. You have to do it. You can't use every horse that can that can uh, run. You can only use the ones that are going to help you, not the ones that. Uh, not the ones that could be you, but you think they're overbet or they don't. It doesn't work for the ticket that you're making. Let's see who wins the Grade One Rodeo Drive right now. Nice beginning for Mucho Unusual. Tonohutu is now coming through on the inside to set the pace, and Maxim Raid is third in the early going, about two lengths off the leaders. Then it's Lady Prancelot. Racing on the inside of Catch the Eye and Pretty Point is at the back of the field. Juan Hernandez and Mucho Unusual striding clear to lead it by a length and a half. Tonohutu is in second and a little bit eager, might come back for more. Another three back to Maxim Rate, who's galloping along smoothly in third, and Lady Prancelot unhurried five lengths off the lead. Catch the Eye three wide and Pretty Point is just inside of her. Into the turn they go, and it's Mucho Unusual. In front by a length to Tonohutu in second. Maxim Raid is still biding her time in third. Pretty Point, Lady Prancelot, and Catch the Eye across the course. About five lengths covers the entire field. It's an easy lead for Mucho Unusual, who comes onto the backstretch with a three-quarter length advantage on Tonohutu in second. Maxim Raid in the clear while third. 
at the rail. Pretty Point is now clearly into fourth. And then it's Catch the Eye. And stretch running Lady Prancelot is at the back with a half mile left to go in the Rodeo Drive. Mucho Unusual in charge by a length and a half. Tonahutu is still in second. Then comes Maxim Rate, a neck in front of Pretty Point. Lady Prancelot now starts to run a little bit. She's got four lengths to make up. Outside of her, catch the eye. Mucho Unusual now spurts clear at the top of the stretch. Lady Prancelot will angle to the far outside. Maxim Rate is currently in second. There's a furlong left to go. Mucho Unusual, Maxim Rate, and Lady Prancelot. But it's Mucho Unusual digging in very gamely on the front end. And the California bred, Mucho Unusual, all the way in the Rodeo Drive. And the number four, Mucho Unusual, gets it done, paying 880 with a nice 94 buyer. Just moved up about four buyer points, but in turf racing, buyers tend to usually not do that big high jump of 15, 20 points. Uh, what were your thoughts when uh, the race started off and Mucho Unusual kind of started to get that you know, easier lead over Tonahutu? Well, I think once he got the lead, I think that was, I said to myself, well, that's the race. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, didn't, I, I thought the other one was going to get the lead. Tonahutu, but uh, Mucho Unusual, uh, the jockey rode him aggressively, got the top, slowed the pace down to a crawl, and uh, nobody else really had a chance. So um, Tonahutu apparently uh, doesn't like to go that far because he didn't show any uh, lick after, despite his good trip. The other horses were compromised by the pace, and... Uh, you know, actually, even even the horse that finished last is not that bad a horse if he gets mm -hmm. the right spot. But the fact is that horses do best when everything goes their way. They do their worst when nothing goes their way. And so you look for th situations that you believe are going to benefit the horse you like. Um, so any horse is playable depending on who he's against and what the situation is. My, my favorite kind of bets were races where horses didn't get their spots for four or five races, and suddenly the form came out. I look at the race and go, wow, this is exactly what this horse needs right here from this post against these horses with this kind of running style. Uh, and he's got bad numbers. This could, be a, this could be a big score here. So I always look for those kind of races. I feel like for you, looking back, if you were going to do notes, obviously, going forward, a horse like Mutual Unusual and Maxim Rate, who was third early, those horses will kind of be downgraded. And Lady Prance a lot, Tona Hutu, pretty in point, Catch the Eye would kind of be upgrades, as well as they also finding the right spot could be decent bets going forward. Well, they all seem fairly close in ability anyway, so I probably would have had very, very similar numbers on them anyway and probably wouldn't have changed the numbers. Uh, uh, yes, Macho Unusual, had, Macho Unusual had slightly better buyers than the others. And, you know, in retrospect, if, if I had thought he was going to get the lead, it would have been my top selection. Mm -hmm. But I thought uh, I was wrong about that. And, you know, as you're wrong often enough, but I was right in that I narrowed it down to four horses. I thought it would be an extremely slow pace, and the four horses ran one, two, three, four. So it was not like it was, you know, not like a, a horrible handicapping situation, but, um, you know, you're not going to be right all the time either. Let's jump into our last race of the podcast. It was race number 11. It was a two-year-old maiden special weight state bred going one mile on the grass as well. And uh, I liked how you wrote, just no odds line. Didn't didn't really like anything. Gave me some notes. Uh, it just comes down. I, I agree with it. I was so happy you actually made one with no odds line. Just some races, if you don't have a good opinion – don't force an odds line. It's just if you're not going to like the race, take your notes afterwards. And maybe a horse that was in this race, three or four starts down the road, you might have had that good note from this race, and it could end up being the prospering factor if the horse is 20, 30 to 1. You have a good note on that horse. 
Well, I always looked at every horse in every race, both before the race and then after the race. And uh, because horses don't stay the same, they get better, they get worse. Some of them stay the same, but you have to constantly evaluate them to see where they belong and what they're doing. And going into this race, it looked to me like there are too many questions, and uh, uh, it was a lot of there was a lot of guesswork involved. And the more guesses you have in a race, the less successful you're going to be. Want to know stuff and not just guess. Just to tell you some of the guesses in this race <laughs> when i when i started handicapping uh i said well tinan valley uh sent a slow pace and and died but maybe he'll get better he's only had three lifetime starts but he doesn't look like he's much stock so i don't know i don't think he's gonna get any better he's not very good in jest has had four races so he's got some experience uh but his last race he got it by the leader and then two horses that were sitting behind him beat him. The time is very, very slow. He was gelded, but our research in gel uh, for first time geldings, if you bet every single first time gelding, you'd lose 30 cents on the dollar. That's not usually a big, you know, difference mm -hmm. for horses. But he didn't look, he didn't look, look like to me like he had much upside and he had, you know, those numbers were slow. Stars of Bluegrass had never raced this distance, so maybe he liked distance, maybe he won't. Who the heck knows? I don't I have no idea. JC Express, who was stretching out off, off one uh, extremely poor sprint race, maybe he'll like grass, maybe he'll like distance. He had a good workout coming, but that's the that's not enough to go on. Um, so I couldn't, you know, get behind him. Warren's Candyman, trainer does very well with second-time starters, but the horse did nothing in his first start. Maybe this horse can't run at all. Maybe he can't beat me, even if I had a hamstring pull. So, um, I don't know. I didn't know about him. And the loot is mine. I said, well, if this horse can run at all, he wins. So, I checked his workout comments. They were not very good. This horse may not be able to run at all. Who the heck knows? He was making his first start. He had a bad post. Um, so, I didn't know enough about him to make any judgment. So, since I had no, no opinion, really, on any of these horses, as far as who might do best. I mean, obviously, Ingest was going to be the favorite, but so what? Any of these other horses might have stepped up and, uh, you know, and, and run a good race. Turns out none of them did. Um, but I don't think this is a race where you're going to have to circle a lot of horses for future greatness, because I don't think that's going to happen here. But it's perfectly fine to skip races. You don't like a race, don't play it. Yes, I've had to, you know, do something with races where I play the pick six, or, uh, you know, a pick five carryover or something. But, um, Normally, if you don't like a race, you don't have to play it. You can do something else. You can even go home early if you like. There's no mandatory betting rule. I feel like, for me, too, I kind of thought the number two in Jest was going to be the horse to beat. I tried to get a little spicy in this race. The number six investment account, I kind of had the best start off the debut with the blinkers on, also being second-time turf and kind of being an improvement angle. So I made, obviously, in Jest a very you know short price, and then I put six to one on a horse like investment account and then the horse ends up going off at 17 to one. I, I know obviously from reading the books, like when you see, when you make a horse six to one and then he's 25 to one, you should be licking your chops, but don't, do you ever also feel like maybe you've missed something that the public obviously doesn't like this horse and you liked him enough to kind of put him in that contender status. How is it for you when you would see that, you know, a 30, 40 to one shot and then you had him at well, five to one in your, Wow. Yeah, I understand, which is which is the old, he's dead on the board, the mm -hmm. connections probably don't like the horse, and so why should I like him kind of thing. Or, gee, I, I, I'm I'm going on a bad streak, and I have the horse 4-1, to one, he's going off at 8-1, to one, what am I missing? Yeah. Well, anytime there was a discrepancy, I always would relook at the PPs and see what I missed. 
usually not usually I didn't miss much. Usually it's just I have a different opinion on the race mm-hmm. because of various circumstances. I, I remember uh, one t- one time several years ago when Santa Anita had the six and a half furlong races when the entries came out for Saturday for it was for Friday night and they came out a couple of days early uh, I was walking around uh, telling everybody the word for the the word for the week this week is meltdown for, <laughs> for two days before the race because there were three absolute speed horses who must have the lead no matter what it was a sprint race and then there were other plotters back there that you knew were just gonna just plod their way back be, you know, past these horses when they all got exhausted. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Sometimes you see races like that where you say, okay, I have a... And of course, uh, you know, some of those speed horses got bet strong because they, you know, they had good numbers. But good numbers is just one part of the handicapping process. These are horse races. They don't race on a straight line. They race each other. Mm-hmm. And that means certain things happen in a race. And uh, the more you can predict what's going to happen, the better uh, better you're going to be. I remember making a real big score on a horse one time who showed four races which seemed to be not very good at all. And in each of those races, to me, the horse actually raced well. He was just over his head. I said, if he drops into the right spot, this horse is going to surprise some people, which is exactly what he did. And I remember another time there was a horse that I had been following went off this horse went off at 30 to 1 and I've been watching him I didn't have good numbers on the horse but I said you know what this horse to me is a trier every time he races he tries if he's forced wide he keeps going if he's stuck between horses he recovers and try this is a real trier and this and I said a race drew in I said he's got the rail on this turf race I'm telling you if the jockey sends him out of there fast this horse can keep going because he's not going to let people pass him. He's just a game horse. And sure enough, he won. He paid $65 to win, and obviously I collected a whole bunch of money on the race. And I'm sure after the race, people say, well, the horse didn't have good numbers. Why did you like him? Well, from watching him, that's how I liked him. I see what he was. Some horses are just brave, and they try really hard. And other horses, oh, somebody's near me. Uh, I, I think I'm done. And I, I, used to own, I used to own a bunch of harness horses. Uh, before I decided I'd rather have money than horses. <laughs> and they, they were all different. Some of them, you know, I had one, he would he was a big, strong guy. When he, he would get the lead easily, but as soon as somebody came near him, he said, I think my race is over now. And he would, you know, he would retreat. Uh, and I had another horse, so a tiny little horse, who said, ah, no one's going to beat me, and I'm going to fight as hard as I possibly could. They're all different. So the better you know them, the better you're going to be able to handicap. Let's see who wins the finale here at Santa Anita right now. Teton Valley flies out of the gate, goes straight to the front. Detective Bernardo on the outside and just is in between them. JC Express in the leading group, just two lengths off the speed. Then investment account and Warren's Candyman. The loot is mine and the pink silks is settled toward the back of the field. Followed by Stars of Bluegrass, who's second to last. And Blue Star is at the back. Seven lengths covers the field. Teton Valley, short lead. The favorite in jest on a stranglehold in second. It's two and a half more lengths. J.C. Express is down on the inside, sharing third with Detective Bernardo. Behind them, investment account and Warren's Candyman has about seven lengths to make up. Stars of Bluegrass next. The loot is mine. And at the back of the field, it's still Blue Star. Past the half mile they go, Teton Valley the controlling speed in just three quarters back in second. Then J.C. Express in third. 
followed by Detective Bernardo, one from the outside. Investment account is losing just a bit of ground. The loot is mine. Pink Silk's trying to thread through traffic on the inside of Warren's Candyman. Two clear of stars of Bluegrass and Blue Star. They're a quarter of a mile from home. Teton Valley hanging tough on the front end. Ingest wide while coming after him, but makes a big move now. And now it's Ingest who takes the lead. He's a little erratic, but who cares? He has taken control and is opening up. He's got a four-length lead from the back of the field. Blue Star is trying to get into second. Ingest ducking down toward the rail, but he's going to get there, or is he? It's going to be Ingest saved by the wire. A half length when the smoke cleared. Blue Star was motoring. Behind them, it's a photo between Warren's Candyman and JC Express. And the number two, Ingest does get it done as the four to five favorite, paying 360 with a lowly 56 buyer. I know, Barry, you talked about leaving early in case you didn't want to watch the race, but that doesn't mean you don't get to go home and also chart and recap the race as well. I think people who maybe don't want to look at certain races, like I know a lot of people complain about maiden races, you still have to go home and try and do the work and become better at those races as well. No, absolutely, because you want to also you want to see what horses you might want to look at for next time. Maybe you want to play against the horse that did well in the race. Maybe you want to play on a horse that finished fifth, but actually looked like he could run. So it's important to watch every horse all the time, even if you're not physically at the racetrack. They are replays. You can watch. I mean, I can watch replays from my computer every day if I want. Now, uh, at that time, you had to watch them on television, or you could subscribe. You could subscribe to a service. Earlier than that, uh, we used to give some money to the guy up in the video room so we could get the videotapes because uh, they weren't shown to the public. Uh, we'd make a little side deal and watch them at home. So uh, to me, watching the horses and learning about the horses, it people ask me, did you ever get bored after all these years? <laughs> no, because every day was a different puzzle. Every horse was different. Every time there are new horses to get excited about, every time there were new horses to get excited against also. So, uh, no, I never got bored. But, of course, I have a high threshold for tedium. So I could, I could sit there and watch replays for, you know, an hour and a half and not get bored. And other people say, well, I, okay, they're all horses. What's, what's the big deal? You, uh, you had the note of the uh, workout report on the loot is mine, not having a good workout report, obviously finishes off the board. We kind of get into now, you know, making sure, you know, we have stuff like uh, Tripno Pros now where they're doing workout reports for Santa Anita, uh, New York, and also sometime at Churchill Downs. Uh, DRF formulator where you can just literally input your notes every single night compared to, you know, the Dave Litfin back in the day, Mitchell, all these guys who had to do it on, you know, how many composition notebooks did you guys go through before we had a computer process be able to do that kind of stuff? Well, I, I put everything on the computers. As I said, I, I was computerized early. It was mm -hmm. four years before I took up the thoroughbreds. So uh, I was all ready when, when I started going to the thoroughbreds. And I always put my notes on the computer so I could always look them up uh, in case I had some question about a horse. But usually doing this every day, you get to, you, you know, you get to know the horses. And I always thought that's the most important thing, knowing who these horses are and understanding them. Now, when you're first learning... Um, it's good to get a bunch of stuff. I used to get the uh, Today's Racing Digest every day so I could hear, mm -hmm. I could read their analysis of each race. Or you may want to follow a particular handicap and why he likes horse A, why he doesn't like horse B. There used to be a free replay service that uh, Bob Selvin and Jeff Siegel ran so you could uh, listen to their replays for free every night to see what, what how they selected horses, why they liked A and why they didn't like B. And that was, to me, a very important part of learning how to do uh, thoroughbreds. Eventually, I, you know, I just did everything myself. But at the beginning, it's good to learn from people how they do stuff uh, and, and avoid, you know, the obvious stuff you see in handicapping books. I mean, our research 
showed that uh, jockeys really don't make a heck of a lot of difference. Uh, uh, you know, we had one survey. We, we, this is we're looking at tens of thousands of races for some of these factors. If you bet every jockey uh, who was uh, who had less than ten percent wins versus every jockey over twenty percent wins, you put them both on the favorite over a long period of time. They had almost identical ROIs, mm -hmm. so it really didn't didn't make a heck of a lot of difference. Earnings per start is a great straight line way of ranking horses, but it doesn't give you any advantage. The same thing with who had the best last race. There are a lot of players who watch replays looking for trouble. Trouble is actually a negative. Uh, you can bet every horse who had trouble, they're going to do worse than horses who had no trouble for a lot of different reasons. So, uh, and here's one last race finish position. It doesn't matter if the horse won or finished second or finished third. Uh, every finish between first, second, third, fourth, and fifth, if you bet the horse next time with no handicapping, came to virtually the identical loss. There was almost no difference. So it's more how the horse got to where he was and where he is today, not, uh, uh, you know, not, oh, he finished third. He must be better than a horse that finished fifth, with one big exception, and that's horses coming back in very uh, within 10 days. We had big discrepancy between horses that ran one, two, three, and horses that finished four, fourth or worse in the last start uh, if they came back really, really quickly. So that was an important factor. But uh, uh, a lot of the factors that people looked at in the old handicapping books, yeah, they'll give you winners, but they won't make you any money. I was always interested in making money. And uh, so I was looking at factors that people didn't look at quite as much, uh, maybe as they should. Uh, workouts, for example, uh, are very important, I found, especially in lightly raced horses. Uh, probable pace of the race, it's too difficult for people to figure that out. All you got to do is assign a style designation to each horse and then plot the race and do this enough, you'll have a pretty good idea who's doing what to whom. Um, I always was big on trainer details. A lot of people, again, don't want to do the work. So try to avoid the obvious and look for something that maybe is not quite so obvious and learn why horses win and lose. Those would be my pieces of advice. No truer words have ever been spoken. Please, guys, go check out these two wonderful books, The Skeptical Handicapper and Money Secrets at the Racetrack. Barry, tell them where they can get it at. Well, they can get them both through my website, which is trpublishing.com. And if they want to order uh, uh, from me directly, the website, um, I'll give them $5 off if they mention your show. How about that for a little bargain there? Plus, I'll autograph Skeptical Handicapper for them. If they forget this, TR stands for thoroughbred racing, so it's easy to remember. But if you forget, uh, Amazon Amazon carries the books. You can always get them through Amazon. Thank you so much, Barry. I appreciate your time. Been looking forward to this for weeks. Unfortunately, we had that uh, quick little snafu where Santini had to cancel. Thank you so much for being on. Hey, thanks, Spencer. I enjoyed it, and uh, good luck with your podcast. I enjoy listening to it myself. A big thank you to all the fans for listening to this great show and my special, special guest, Barry Meadow. This show is by our production of In the Money Media. In the Money Media's president is Peter Thomas Fornitale. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. And our In the Money Media business manager is Drew Cotney. I'm Spencer Luganbuehl, and we will see you next time.